Before the message today, I'm going to ask Henry Speed if he would come and read a portion of God's Word to us from the book of Philippians. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Henry. As I mentioned earlier, are we singing again? We're not. Good. Okay. Well, as they're going down, uh, Pastor Curtis is not here today, so we're looking at the book of Philippians. Never fear, we'll be back in the book of Ephesians next week. So we're in, not in Ephesians 3 today, we're in Philippians 3. So one book over, so it's kind of the same and kind of different. How different is yet to be seen. Philippians chapter 3, we all like things in life to be right, don't we? Of course we do. Have you ever thought about how much time each week you devote to setting things right or putting things back to being right in your life? It's a lot of our week, isn't it? Putting things back the way it should be. So it's a crazy week, and so what you need is some downtime. Time for some Netflix binging. Or a quiet space with a good book. Or maybe you're saying, no, it has been a crazy week. I got to get this house in order. We got to get things lined out. We got to put things right. So what set things right in your world? We all want things to be right. Of course. Who doesn't? Now, They say that there are two kinds of people in the world, people who put people in categories and uh, people who don't. So today we're going to be like the first. We're going to say there's two kinds of people in the world, that there are people who are more order people than there are those who are more comfort people. Some people seem to, what really sets life right for them is when they want, they make life more orderly and that is their preferred vision of what's right Ah, then things are good. On the other hand, there are people that their tendency is, is they like things to be comfortable. They want to remove discomfort. And that's their version of a world set right. 
So the order and excellence crowd, on the one hand, dislikes disorder. They remove dandelions from their yard. They balance the checkbook. They keep their body fit. They run a conscientious schedule. They pursue their ambitions. They deny their desires. On the other hand, the comfort and enjoyment crowd, they dislike discomfort. They go out and play catch in a yard full of dandelions. They spend money from their checkbook. They exercise because it's fun. Their ambitions, uh, they're their hobbies. Their schedule is flexible, and generally, they do what they enjoy. Now, all of us really, right, are some combination of both of these. We found a way. But all of us probably tend to slide to one side or the other. One is our, we tend to go that direction. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, not necessarily the portions we read, all of it, Paul takes aim at the order crew in verses 1 to 6. He talks about those who pursue life in a legal way, a law way. These are the legalists. And he says, I threw my lot in with this group as well. I was everything you'd want to be in the Jewish culture. I knew the law. I came from the right tribe. I was a good person. I was blameless. Boy, I had it all figured out. My resume was spotless. My to-do list was checked off. And Paul says, I don't recommend it. That's not the way to go. And then at the end of the chapter, in verses 15 through 19, Paul takes aim the other way. I'll let you read it on your own. But Paul basically says, there are some who, they're not legalists, they're libertines. They're not order people, they're comfort people. He says, I tell you now with tears even, that these are folks who are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly, and the end of their life is destruction. Life is comfortable, and that's not good. So is it a bad thing to try to bring order and structure into your life? Is it a bad thing to have comfort and to remove discomfort? I mean, these both are side effects of the fall. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we've had chaos, disorder, and pain, discomfort. They weren't, though, at the beginning. It's not what God designed at the start. And they're not going to be part of the way things will end up. There will not be chaos nor pain in the new creation. So what's wrong with trying to remove disorder and discomfort? Well, the problem with trying to set life right by removing either disorder or minimizing discomfort, it's, there's a twofold problem. First of all, neither of these approaches intrinsically factors God into the equation at all. I mean, at the end of the day, we really can't remove the brokenness around us. We really can't get everything done. We really can't get everything exactly the way it ought to be. And we really can't fully remove discomfort either. 
And so without reference to Christ, all our efforts of pursuing either comfort or order end up really, I mean, he's the one that deals with the brokenness in this world. And if we pursue these things without regard to him, it starts to look like we are involved in a self-salvation project. We're being the savior. We're the ones removing pain. We're the ones removing disorder. Neither take God into account. That's the first problem. The second problem with these approaches that they share in common is that really you can't depend on either to really deliver. You can try to remove disorder, but you're going to fail. You may think you've got the world by the tail. All your ducks lined up in a row. But then there's tomorrow. It really, you won't get it all figured out. And the reality is with comfort as well. You can pursue comfort, a padded life, an enjoyable life. But ultimately, the more you pursue pleasure, the more self-defeating it becomes And eventually, it actually will bring more... I mean, if you sat on the couch 24-7 because it's comfortable, eventually your body would break down and you'd be really uncomfortable, right? So it doesn't deliver what it promises. Neither approach will serve you well, either in this life or in the one to come. So if you try to control your life and get it all ordered, ultimately you're trying to replace God because he's the only one that can set things right. And if your life revolves around comfort in life and enjoyment, then ultimately you're, you're marginalizing God because what you're doing is you're taking gifts and ignoring the giver. Hmm. So what's the answer? What's the way forward? Well, it's easy to think that the answer might be, well, I know. If on the one hand, you've got pursuing order in life, that's what's going to set things right in my world. Life will be good if it can be orderly, or life will be good if it's comfortable. If these are the extremes, then we all know what the answer is, right? Finding the perfect blend. Finding the special combination of things and living life in a way where we're not pulled one way or the other, but living kind of in the Bible-ordained middle. However, that's not the way forward. The answer is that there is a third and different way altogether, and it's in a person, Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about either comfort or order or the right combination of the two, but instead it's about a totally different third way, really more than a way, a person, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can set things right, who can satisfy your compulsion for order and your thirst for pleasure. And in the portion that Henry read today, the middle of Philippians 3, we see front and center Paul who wrote the book unpacking how Jesus satisfies our control issues and our comfort issues. So how does that work? What does he say? First of all, Christ is a person to know. You'll notice in your passage in verse 7 and in verse 10, it says that Paul has an ambition. He's got an aim, and it's not his comfort 
like the end of the chapter, and it's not his rule-keeping and orderliness of life in the first part of the chapter. His aim, he says, that I may know Christ. Now, this is strange. I don't know if it sounds strange to you, but it should. Because when Paul writes this letter in which he says, my ambition is to know Christ, he's been a believer for 30 years. All the stories about Paul's three missionary journeys you read about in the book of Acts, they're all in the rearview mirror. Here's a seasoned Christian, an experienced missionary, and he says, my ambition is to know Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, he know, he's written the book of Romans, the books of Corinthians. I mean, he knows more about Jesus than I ever will. And yet he says, I want to know Jesus. Well, what does he mean? Well, the answer is in the word know, to know Christ. And we, we get some clues about how this word is used in the Bible and other places. So let's look at some of those. Let's look at the book of Hosea. Hosea 13 says, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Now think about this. You're telling me that they didn't know any other gods? I mean, they could have named them. Of course they knew them. So it must be a different kind of knowing. Let's go to the next passage in Amos. You only, God says, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's like, you're my family. I only punish my children. That's the knowing. It's a knowing that is a relationship. A knowing that means there's a deep connectedness, a family relationship. An experience of being loved and loving in return, that's all bound up with Paul's ambition to know Christ. Paul is not after a relationship with Jesus that's merely functional. So, you know, you follow Jesus, and then he'll make sure that wealth and success and relationships follow you. It's kind of a deal. It's not that kind of functional, knowing. Paul's not after a relationship that's manageable. You know, you do Christian stuff for part of the weekend, but the rest of the time and the priorities, those are yours. Kind of a part-time relationship. There's a knowing, there's a relationship, eh, but it's, it's just here. But over here, there's other things going on. Paul's not also not about a relationship that's mainly rational. I want to know lots more about Jesus. So uh, I'm reading lots and lots and lots of books. I'm big into theology. That's what I mean when I say I want to know him. Paul's not after a relationship that's mainly ethical. I mean, we think about this, right? As Christians, we, people assume that when we say, you know, we're Christians, that we're saying we're good people. That's what people hear when they hear Christian. They think, oh, you're that kind of person, I see. I'm sorry I said that word. You know, we think Christians are people who have virtues, and we teach our children virtues. But have you ever considered that pursuit of virtue might actually be a way, not of advancing Christianity, but as a way of actually avoiding Jesus? 
Because when you pursue a life of virtue, you're doing better, you're better, you look better, and you look better, then really why do you need a Savior? And if I can live life well enough and bring enough Christian order and Christian comfort into my life, then, oh, you know, I really don't have a need for God. But if you pursue Jesus and knowing Him, the Bible way is that virtue follows. But if you pursue virtue and that, the ethical dimension is what's front and center in your life, living like a Christian, if that's your main pursuit, then you're either going to be proud because you think, eh, I've done well, or you're going to be in despair when you realize you haven't. But instead of all these inferior kinds of relationships, ethical, functional, manageable, rational, Paul is saying, I want to know Jesus personally. I want to experience his love for me and love him in return. It's a relationship with the person of Jesus. We should labor to not think about Jesus as a concept, but as a person. So are you trying to set life right apart from this person? Is your life a lot of managing the details, managing your comfort level? Where's Jesus in this equation? Where is God in your life, in your ambitions, in your priorities? Paul says it's not about this or that. It's about Jesus. He says, I have no higher aim, no greater treasure, no other passion than to actually know this individual, Jesus Christ. He's a person to know. And that is what sets life right. But it raises the question, doesn't it? How? How does the relationship with Jesus Christ satisfy our desire for things to be set right? How does that work? The answer is, is that Christ is not only a person to know, he's a righteousness to possess. A righteousness to possess. Can we read together? I'll read Philippians 3, 7-9. Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law-keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul said that gain in Christ, benefiting from this relationship, is found and then there are two words, in him. And it has something to do with something called righteousness. Well, this helps us dive deeper into what this relationship is like. 
And what we learn here is that the relationship we have with this person, Jesus, is more like a marriage relationship than a friend relationship. Now, of course, it is a friend kind of relationship, but this passage says it's something more. So when a man and a woman get married, all that's hers becomes his, and all that's his becomes hers. And this is what happens when you have a relationship with Jesus. He takes all of yours, which in this case includes your failures, your weakness, your struggles, your rebellion against God's authority, and he makes it his and removes it from you. He pays all that debt. He absorbs all your liability. And then you get what's his. Jesus is the only person to have never rebelled, who has no weaknesses, who always fully pleased the Father in all ways and at all times. And his life, what did it earn? Not judgment. His life earned eternal life. And now all this he gives to you. And the Bible calls this marriage connection between you and Jesus union with Christ. And you see it all over the New Testament when you read phrases like in him, in Christ, in the beloved. We're united with him, with his death, with his resurrection. In him. And when you're in him, what you are given is his righteousness. God, just like he declared over his son, Several places in the New Testament, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That declaration he now pronounces over all of you who are connected to his son. You are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. You're righteous. And this changes everything. This is how the world is set right. Maybe not your to-do list. Maybe not your vacation schedule. This is not the world set right around you. This is the world set right in you and over you. As God declares over you, all is well. Now you might think, I mean, this does change everything. You, you, you might think Christians, yeah, they're weak people. They're needy. They're desperate. You know, all that admission of guilt and sin and stuff. But if you know that because you're united with Jesus, that the Father loves you to the heights of heaven, because you're connected to his Son, then you can lose everything. 
every accomplishment, every pleasure, every ambition, and have yet everything. Because Christ is yours and you are his. And this makes you bold, not weak and desperate. So when you confess your sin and you declare allegiance to Jesus and you're now connected to him and what's his is yours and yours is his, you're not weak and needy. They can take everything from you and they've taken nothing. On the other hand, people might say, I know those Christians, all those truth claims, smug, self-righteous, self-satisfied, But if you look at the reason why you're loved, it's not your own righteousness. Yeah, I'm loved. Some of us are special. You know, to be chosen by God doesn't mean your choice, right? There's a difference. What this is saying is it's not a righteousness, Paul says, of my own. It's the righteousness from God. It's not the righteousness of God that comes because you're worthy. It's the righteousness of God because you're trusting someone else. You're trusting Jesus. You're trusting him. It's faith in him. Faith is the non-work. It's just saying him. It's pointing him. So you're looking away from yourself altogether. And he's the basis of God's love for you because you're connected to him. So... You're not smug. I'm connected to Jesus. I'm a terrible person. I'm a weak person. And I'm loved. And I'm forgiven. Because I'm connected to him who's perfect. And so I'm not, then we're not smug, are we? And we're not self-satisfied. And we've not arrived. And so Christians, far from being weak and desperate, or proud and arrogant, we can be humble and bold. So you can be wrong. Life is not set right. Disorder everywhere. Discomfort all the time. But we have Jesus. And we know how the story ends. He's a person to know. He's a righteousness to possess. We all know that hymn, Amazing Grace. Everybody knows Amazing Grace, at least the first verse. It was written by a man, you may know his name, John Newton. You also may know a bit of his story. Before Newton became a Christian, he was a pretty bad guy. He was a slave trader in 1700s in England. But then he became a Christian and his life changed. And he became a pastor. And that grace of God changed his life. And it went from a disorderly life and a life full of illicit pleasure to a life of godliness by grace. And as an old man, a friend went to visit Newton And his old age was setting in, only a few weeks to live. He said, 
My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. So you see, throughout his life, grace was the theme of this man's life. But then we need to ask Pastor Newton, changed Pastor Newton, grace-saturated Pastor Newton, what is grace? This hymn you wrote about grace, what are you talking about? brother. Newton was also a great, not only a songwriter, but a letter writer. He wrote a letter that says this. He says, this includes all I can wish for my dear friends, that you may grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. To know him is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. And to know him perfectly is eternal life. So as we move into the summer and we try to find a balance in our lives, between a world full of disorder and a world of discomfort. Let's remember, the Bible is calling us to a third way, to a person. To a person and that to know him and to know the righteousness that we have in him. And that, brothers and sisters, is a world set right. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we ask for your blessings on your word this morning. We pray that our ambition would be at least a faint echo of Paul's when he desires to know you. So Lord, let us know you this week. Give us a desire to know you more. Give us that desire and then satisfy that desire with yourself. And we pray that we would find that rightness of life, not in what we can manufacture around ourselves, but for what you have already worked for us in Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.